After Jacob deceives his father and receives the blessing, his mother instructs him to flee for safety. So, Jacob started running. Run, Forrest, run! Run, Forrest! He started running and ended in a town called Haran. If you have a good memory, you may remember that Haran was where Abraham and his family settled after leaving Ur in Genesis 11, and it's where Abraham's servant found a bride for Isaac. It's in modern-day southeast Turkey, so quite a bit north of Canaan. Haran is on the Balik River, so it became a merchant town with trade routes to both Assyria and Babylon. In fact, that's where the name came from. Haran is Akkadian for highway, road, or caravan. Spiritually, it was the center of worship of the Mesopotamian moon god named Sen. It had mild winters and hot summers, and in 610 AD, it was destroyed by the Chaldeans and the Medes, and in 639 AD, it was absorbed into the rising Islamic state. So there you go, a little bit about Haran, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Fathers, it was struck as we were singing a song earlier that good, good father, and all the way through the Old Testament, you are viewed as a good father, a gracious father, a loving father, a, a serious father at times, as you call your people to follow you, and when they don't, you give consequence. Father, I know a lot of us didn't grow up with great dads, but a lot of us did too, and a lot of us can imagine what great dads would be like. And Father, we read through scriptures, and you are a, a patient dad to us. And I can't emphasize how cool that is because we mess up all the time and we need your patience and we need to know that you're still there for us even when we blow it. As real life dads in this earth, we, we seek to be patient with our kids. We don't always succeed. We get frustrated that they wouldn't learn faster. We get frustrated over all sorts of different things and we're not often known by our patience but we can see the results in our kids when we're not. And so when we read through the scriptures and hear that you are a patient God, a God who continues to seek kindness and love, to show that to his children, reminding them always that he is there as a God who will love, as God who will give up anything for them, a God who will strengthen and give hope. But we thank you for being that kind of God today. We thank you for being a gracious and loving Father. We thank you for all that you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 27, starting with verse 41. And just as a preface to this, has anybody ever seen an inheritance issue go wrong? Anybody in your life? It's almost comedic. It's not funny at all because it tears families apart over all sorts of insane things. One of the, and I can't even say this, one of the most disheartening ones that I've ever heard of was it was during the funeral of the dad when one of the siblings who did not show up to the funeral did show up to his dad's house with a U-Haul and took everything that his dad had in the house away, much to the chagrin of those who were at the funeral. I've seen sisters destroy a lifelong friendship and sisterhood over China. Apparently, it was a very special China. I don't know. I've seen all sorts of crazy things over the years. People who thought they were good, but you dangle a little inheritance, and we lose perspective. We lose sight of the relationships, and we see the things. Now, let me just say, 
that whole time is a confusing, it's a hard time. And it's understandable in some ways why people get it all jumbled up, but it is jumbled up. They're dealing with grief. Sometimes they put that grief upon a, a place setting of China or whatever it might be. They're already kind of frazzled from missing their mom or their dad or their spouse or whoever it is. And they look at this thing that's left as the last remnant. Sometimes there's old feelings of distrust or hurt feelings because they were the favorite or they at least it felt like they were the favorite. All those emotions at the death of someone that you love and cherish is all confusing you. But can we agree that most of it's just greed and envy? And we place things as more important than relationships. And when we do that, we destroy the most important things. And we're left with something that's rather empty. It gives you a picture because every one of us know at least stories that just went terribly wrong. Relationships that have been damaged forever, it seems, because they just can't get by the things. Now you get a picture of chapter 27, verse 41, where we pick up. And it says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which was his father had blessed him with. And so Esau knew that it was prophesied that Jacob should get the blessing. He knew. Mom knew. Dad knew. They all knew. He knew that he had sold his birthright, had no right to the blessing. He knew that was all possible, but Dad didn't seem to know. Dad was going to give him the blessing that essentially gave him everything. And he was kind of excited about that. I don't have to pay for my dumb mistakes as a kid. I don't have to not get the blessing. Dad seems like he's going to give it to me. And Jacob and mom got involved, and all things went haywire. There was some deception involved. There was hurt feelings involved. And Esau ended up getting not much of a blessing at all, other than when things get really get rough, you'll be able to shake off your brother's leadership and, and move on. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which, with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning my father are approaching, and I will kill my brother Jacob. It's one way to get the inheritance, I guess. You remove the competition. I guess it's all coming to me now. You got to do that, I guess, prior or right around, or in this case, it was just different. It would go to him. But he was consoling himself. He was so filled with hatred, even though he knew that other stuff, so filled with hatred over what his brother had done. He felt like he stole the blessing. In a sense, he did. Not a blessing that was his by right or that he deserved or that was prophesied, just that dad had decided to give it to him. Now, it is a little bit further step, but can you see how it's not a whole lot further step in our rationalization than pulling up to your father's house who is now passed with your whole family at the funeral with the U-Haul? Do you see how many rationalizations and justifications and excuses that somehow you had to tell yourself to convince yourself that that was the right call? Esau, he's not even really embarrassed about his anger. He feels justified and righteous in his anger. And perhaps that part was okay. But he wants to kill his brother, and he lets people know that he wants to kill his brother. 
Now, I don't know how good your family is at keeping secrets. Anybody have a great secret-keeping family? We do not. Uh, We have three informants, uh, three and a half informants in our five-person family. Um, And so we hear a lot of stuff going on. Um, So mom hears about it. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, and so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. I guess they knew that could be one of the risks of doing what they did. I don't think they thought that far in advance. You know, mom says, hey, I'll take the hit, but apparently that wasn't going to be an option. So now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, says Rebecca. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? How does that make sense? Because first of all, Jacob would be dead, and then they would have to execute Esau as well for capital murder, right? That was the punishment for the crime in those days. That's what you would do. So she'd lose both sons. And in that statement, you get a sense that she loves both boys, which makes sense as a mom. And yet sometimes you read through the text and people are surprised, but she cared about both kids. She hated seeing her family torn apart. She knew that this could have been a possibility, but she knew what God had prophesied and she wasn't going to let Isaac ruin it. Perhaps she had some trust issues in that. I don't know, but she went forward with the plan and now she had another plan. Go to your uncle's house. And then, I guess not wanting to be totally upfront about this, although she had to be clear, the, clearly the underlying message here, she said to her husband Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If any of you have daughter-in-laws, don't admit it right now, but just you know that Rebecca would understand. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? In other words, they're driving me absolutely batty crazy. They're making my life miserable. They don't respect me. They do all sorts of horrible things. I just can't stand it. But was that really the big reason? It's true what she felt here. Was that really the big reason she was sending her son away? No, she was sending her son away to protect him. So then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, but arise and go to Padamaran to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So they finally do something that Abraham did way back in the day when Isaac turned 40. They sent one of their sons to find a believing wife. Apparently there weren't too many in the land or any in the land. And so they sent him to his uncle's house. I don't know that that was the forethought involved in sending Jacob to his uncles to find a believing wife, but they certainly utilized it as such. And so Jacob was able to go, and you'll see as the story progresses, find some believing wives. I say plural because it got all complicated, but we'll go on. And then Isaac does something really cool. Isaac understands the situation. He understands his son's anger. He's probably heard the same things He understands that it's been pretty miserable for Rebecca and for himself because of his son's wives, Esau's wives. So he tells him to do something that's totally right. Go find a believing wife. Make your life easier, right? And then he says this. He gives them the full blessing that God had given Abraham and that Abraham had given him and that God had given him. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. In other words, 
he gives to him the blessing of descendants, right? A blessing that from him will come a holy nation. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to all your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave Abraham. He gives him the blessing of the land, the land of Israel. This is your future possession. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away he went to Padamaran, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. So he gives him the full blessing, which he should have done immediately. And to his credit, he didn't try to take back what Jacob had sort of slyly achieved, right? He didn't take back the blessing that was clearly by ruse that he got in there and essentially stole it from, from Esau. He recognized God's hand in it. He recognized God's rebuke in it. He recognized that he had done wrong, not Jacob. And it's interesting that I say that, but you'll never see anywhere in Scripture where God rebukes Jacob for what he did. And so he goes here and seeing that God was blessing this blessing that he had given to his son and that he was the son of promise. He continues to give him the full blessing. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaran to take a wife from there and that he had blessed him and he had directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padamaran. So here's the other thing. There's two things in this. So Esau is furious in his justified righteous anger, okay? And all of a sudden in the midst of this justified righteous anger, he's saying, Dad just blessed him again. Shouldn't Dad be mad at this? Shouldn't be Dad trying to undo this? Shouldn't be Dad be trying harder to share with him dis disapproval? Why, why is Dad back in this? Why is he expanding upon the blessing even though he had nothing for me? And then he heard about his dad sending his brother to Patamaram or however you say that in to go get a wife, a believing wife. And all of a sudden, those 35 years of family gatherings came hauntingly home to him. And he began to understand just how much his wives had made things hard for mom and dad. How maybe he had erred in the type of person that he had married. They seemed to kind of go with the flow a little bit, but now they, he saw very clearly that what he had done had displeased them. And sometimes you read into this just a little bit and maybe he started to look back to the time that he sold his birthright. So, yeah, maybe there is some stuff that God saw that is the reason my brother's getting this blessing instead of me. Maybe there is some things in my life that dad is now more clearly seeing and mom saw that make Jacob the right person or the right call when they talk about the son of blessing. Some commentators believe that this is the point where some of Esau's rage began to lessen. It wasn't gone at this moment, but began to lessen. And, I, and one of the commentators made this point. I thought it was interesting. If you wanted to kill your brother, the time to do it was right after he left. Nobody would have known how come he didn't get to uncles, Uncle LeBond's. Nobody would have known if he got there and just didn't come back. Nobody would have known. He could have blamed it on a hunting trip. He could have blamed it on all sorts of different things. He could have gone to that country, killed him and come back. He, but he never did. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael, which was Abraham's brother, 
and took as his wife, it took as his wife besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. And so it's 35 years late, but he tries to make his mom and dad happy. And he goes and he gets a wife from Ishmael, and Ishmael clearly knew about the Lord from Abraham, right? His dad teaching him all these sorts of things over the years. He knew that it just didn't go down his way and they were cast out, so there were some feelings, but they were both there at the funeral. And so he knew that Ishmael had at least a believing side to him, and this was of his relation, and so he went to get a wife from there. Most commentators believe that the descendants of Ishmael queried quickly went into idolatry and that not much was left remaining of their faith in God or Yahweh. But maybe at this point there still was, and so he went to that because they were local, because he knew that they held to a different standard, and he got a wife, and he brought her home. Now, just out of sheer numbers, does anybody think that was a good idea that brought family harmony home? No. Number one, if mom and dad like her better, the other two hate her. And if you like her better, the other two hate her. And if you don't like her, the other two hate her. There's no scenario that I can think of where this was a harmonious home after bringing in a new wife 35 years into it. You are redrawing all sorts of boundaries and power schemes and lines, and it has just got to be a nightmare. But he tried to make it right and probably further complicated his own life and who knows what else. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. As Mike was saying, it's about, it about 500 miles to the north. It was a long trip. It took, even on donkey or camel, multiple weeks to get there. He's about three days in when he comes to this certain place and stayed there the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And so he's... Three days into the trip, he stops at this place called Bethel. We'll learn that it's Bethel later on. Bethel means house of God, and he names it as such. And it's known from then on, all the way through the Old Testament, as Bethel. And so he gets there, and he's tired, so he takes a nap, and he has this this dream, this God-inspired dream. And God opens up a window for him to view this ladder of angels descending and ascending from earth up into heaven. It's got to be an incredible sight. First, it shows... There is a spiritual side, that this God that he had been hoping in, trusting in, believing in all these years, man, talk about check, it's real. There's no doubt anymore, it's, it's there. Shows the power of God, that it's not just him, some nebulous God someplace in the future, but that he's got a whole army that serves him. That he's a God that's informed as they go up and they go down, going all throughout the earth, reporting back to God continually, that he sees, that he knows, that he hears shares with Jacob in no uncertain terms that God is real and that God is powerful. And then above all that, right, he says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then God himself for the first time appears to Jacob and gives the full blessing that he had given to Abraham and that he had given to Isaac And again, the land on which you live, I will give it to your offspring. 
promise of the land. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed, promise of a holy nation. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And finally, God fulfills the last part of this by saying, and I will walk with you, and I will be your God, and I will protect you until my mission is accomplished for you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, which is the name for Bethel, and this is the gate of heaven. I don't know if he slept anymore that night. I might not have. That's a pretty awesome thing to be confronted with, to have God himself sharing that that blessing that dad gave was, was real and complete and then extended upon that blessing by saying, I will be a protector to you all the days of your life. That'll blow you away. And it would give you a crazy sort of peace and confidence of knowing that, man, God's with me. He shares that all the way through scripture. And by the way, that should be our living kind of uh, operas, uh, uh, what do I want to say this? Operatus, I don't know how to say it anymore, but it should be the mode of which we live life. There's a saying I can't remember right now, or at least can't say. Um, and so he responds in this way. It says, early the next morning, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured out oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And Jacob made a vow saying, and he goes on to the vow. There's another interesting piece that I'll give you on this. It's interesting, Abraham did it, and Isaac did it, and, and now Jacob. When they want to glorify and to praise the Lord, they set up an altar. An altar is some place where you sacrifice things. That's what you do on an altar. And it kind of bespeaks this thing that we talked about way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, that there was some teaching, at least, about the substitutionary death of an animal for our sins. Right, that they were sacrificing. Most believe that that's why Cain got in trouble with the Lord because he didn't bring a sacrifice. He brought his own stuff, the, the, the stuff of the field. And so, and so if that is, it has been a teaching, what the substitutionary death of the animal does, and it's a teaching all the way through the Old Testament, is it just teaches this, that when you sin, somebody has to die. That the wages of sin is death. That's what they say in the New Testament. And God in his grace and his mercy said, because I love you, because I'm a God of second chances, I'll allow this animal to pay the price for you. And so what you knew when you were giving a guilt offering to the Lord is that this animal was dying because of you. But you also knew that God was going to take that and honor that so that it didn't have to be you. And so that's what the sacrificial offerings all the way through the Old Testament were. It's this animal has to die in your place. Can you extrapolate that a little bit to Jesus? Why they call him the perfect lamb that was sacrificed for your sin? Because of our sin, somebody had to die. And it would have been animal after animal after animal, but Jesus said, I'll take all the sins of the world upon me. And by my death, as the perfect substitute, because he was without sin, when he died and rose again and claimed victory over sin, death, and the devil, he says, my death counts. 
And as a result, he can say to you, I forgive you. And God looks at you now as perfect. It's a cool thing. But it's something that they seem to get because every time they worshipped him, they would build an altar. And he didn't have an animal with him in this case. So he poured a thank offering. He poured some of the food, the wine that he had. He, he poured it on the altar saying, God, I thank you for showing me this incredible dream. For re- reinforcing and sharing with me this incredible blessing. He's blown away by the experience. This was a mountaintop experience. And then he says this. It says if, but other translations say since, and I think that's a little bit better translation, but it says, since God will be with me and he will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear because he has promised, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, which is my prayer and his promise, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be my God's house. And of all that I give, that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You see, he's worshiping God. He's thanking him for the promise and he's saying, as a result of what you have just promised, I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to trust what you said and in response, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. Now this tithe, this is what a tenth is, is surfaced a couple times. It doesn't seem to have been a formal teaching yet. That will happen later in the Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai. But Abraham, in response to the victory that God had given him over those armies that came and took his nephew Lot, and when he had conquered them and and brought back Lot, he gave a tenth to the king of, of, uh, I want to say peace, but that isn't right. Yep, well, we can look at that up later, but... um, King of Salem, which means, which, means, which means peace. And he gave him a tenth, and, and he recognized the king of Salem as somebody who was spiritually, I don't know, I want to say superior, but closer with God or, or more revered. And Luther always thought that, that that king of Salem maybe was Shem or one of his descendants, right, from Noah. And he gave him that, that, that offering to the king of Salem as a way of saying, thank you, God, for all that you've done. And I want to give to you, which would be the priest of his day, the one that was connected to God or in his eyes, he wanted to give him a praise offering. So he gave him a tenth. Here you get the sense it's just this. God's promised all these things and the king's portion back in this time was a tenth. He says, I want you to be king. If you do this for me, king. You've promised these things. I'm going to treat you as king for the rest of my life. And he says, so I'm going to give you 10%. How he was going to do that, I don't think he was super clear. Was he going to use it to build a temple? Was he going to use it to, to keep the sacrifices coming? Was he going to use it to do what? We're not sure, but he says, some way, somehow, Lord, I'm going to give this back to you. At Christmas, you hear a lot about saying our newborn king. I think there's a, a struggle with that, especially in our country. We don't have kings. We have presidents, and everybody treats presidents horribly. You can't do that to kings or you die, you know, so it's a difference. Um, but we, Jesus says, I am your Lord and Savior. And, and all of us, I think we do great with the Savior part, mostly. We ask for forgiveness over and over, which means that we're not receiving the forgiveness that he won for us, and there's some complication with that. But the reality is, we love it that Jesus died for us. We love it that he saved our lives. We love it that we can be a heaven and a result of his sacrifice. We love those things. He says, I want to be your Lord. I want to be your king. And I want the love and the adoration and the respect and the obedience that comes with that as your king. 
In fact, Jesus would go so far as to say this in the New Testament. He says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. You could extrapolate from that every time we refuse to do that, every time we rebel against them, every time we sin, we're showing hatred toward God and not love toward God. We're certainly not showing trust toward God in any way because we're doing the exact opposite thing and trusting something else more. God says, I want to be your king, which means I want you to trust me most. I want you to obey me. I want you to follow me. And I do this. I'm a benevolent king. I just sent my son to die for you. I care for you. I want you in heaven for eternity, forever and ever and ever with me. Follow me and I will protect you. Follow me and I will make your life more filled with blessing. Follow me and things will tend to work out better. Not that you won't get hurt and have some bumps along the way. God, we still live in a fallen world. God doesn't promise to protect us from all bad things. He promises to walk with us through all things. And sometimes he allows them so that we grow closer to him. Sometimes he allows them because it's original sin and he promises to get us through it. But he says, I want you to follow me. And so we talk about this over and over and I shared it earlier. We, God calls us now to trust him with more and more in our lives. And one of the hardest things we, we did just earlier today, to trust him with our finances. Why is that so hard? Because we pay bills with those finances. Because we can get evicted with those finances. Because we don't eat if we don't have those finances. It's something we've drawn to rely an awful lot on. So when God says, I want you to treat me as king. I want you to place me as the number one thing in the area of finance in your life. I want you to put me first. There's a lot of people who struggle at trusting him in those areas. We trust him with forgiveness. We trust him that if we obey the Ten Commandments, life goes a little bit easier because we don't bring all these consequences upon ourselves. We don't always trust it enough because we do sin. We trust that there's a heaven as a result of Jesus' resurrection. We, we trust that he's with us because he says. And we fail at trusting in all, all those promises and more, you know, when things get hard, but, but God calls us to trust him. It, if the stories of Genesis teach us nothing, is that when these guys trusted God, amazing things happened. When they didn't, complicating things happened. My guess is if you wrote a a diary for your entire life and you wrote down all the cool things and all the hard things, there'd be some similarity in the times of obedience and the times of disobedience that correlated with some of those times. Why? Because 90% of the stuff that we experience that's bad in this life, we bring upon ourselves. Original sin accounts for literally like 5% or less where people sin against us, where, where, where life, a hurricane hits our house or whatever, but 95% of the stuff we, we absolutely bring upon ourselves. So Jacob, hearing the blessings that God was giving to him, he trusted them. Well, you say, that would be enough for me. God shows up and shares all this stuff. I totally believe in him, but that wasn't the case when Jesus came. It wasn't the case when he did the miracles wasn't the case for Moses when he did all the plagues. How long did Pharaoh say he could go? About a week, and then he sent everybody after him. So just because God says doesn't mean that people automatically trust, but Jacob did. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the, oops, it's 633. Okay, we're going to start at chapter 29 next week. Um, let me pray. Father, we love you so much, and we just thank you for this time tonight. You are truly awesome. 
and how you explain things to us and how you walk us through these stories of men that just trusted you even when it was hard. Jacob was on the run, running from his brother, not sure if his brother was going to follow. He was going to an uncle he hadn't met, an uncle that nobody had seen in 95 plus years. He was 75. Mom was, didn't, couldn't have kids for 20 years, so at least 95 years before anybody had seen him. He didn't know if he was still there. He didn't know if they were doing well. But dad said, go find a wife there. And he trusted dad, and now you gave him these incredible blessings, and he trusted you I let that be an encouragement to us tonight. Whatever it is that we're struggling to trust you with, we pray that you would send your spirit to us and strengthen us so that we can overcome those doubts and those misgivings. And then we can be bold and trust you with more in our life. We know that with trust comes peace. And with your promises come healing and blessings and forgiveness. Father, we pray tonight that you help us trust you more, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Guys, go with this blessing tonight. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you with his favor, grant you forever his peace. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please rise.